following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw, for our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. If you're thinking about this and you're really interested in what we've covered, that there's a great community in New Zealand that looks at what I've been talking about over the last four weeks, and that's called Thinking Matters. They run an annual conference. I spoke at it last year. They brought an an international speaker, and they had a whole range of excellent speakers. And they have a website called thinkingmatters.org.nz, thinkingmatters.org.nz. And it's run by a terrific guy from down in Tauranga. And um, they run these conferences. So if you're interested in this sort of stuff, and you really want to work on it and learn more, you can, the resources on that website are fantastic. I was very impressed with it, and, and as I say, I've spoken for them before and really enjoyed it. And I just wanted to say thank you for your hospitality, kindness to myself, my family, and to my lads who've been running the PowerPoint. They've done a great job. And parting today will be tough. <laughs> but don't go choking up on me, okay? <laughs> Get all teary-eyed. <coughs> Don't do that for me. Okay, today we want to look at, we, we looked at in our first session, we looked at removing the lie, what I called the big lie, that there was some conflict between faith and science. In fact, we learned that, that, that science itself was an outgrowth of a Judeo-Christian worldview. And then we saw the fact that the universe might have had a beginning, and we looked at God's second book, which was creation, and we discovered that the fact that science discovered that the universe had a beginning opens the door to a divine cause for the universe. And then last week we looked at what I call localized fine-tuning for planet Earth, how life, in fact, across the universe may be particularly rare and how fortunate and precious our planet is and the kind of complex life it supports. Today I'm going to take a completely different tact. We're going to look at the influence of the person of Jesus Christ in history for the last 2,000 years through the work of his much maligned church. We're going to see that Christianity has transformed the world as we know it, which is why I've called today's presentation Living Proof. Let's look at our text. I think our text may be next. Let's show this up here, Isaac. What have we got on our next slide? You can go there regardless. We're going to look at the critics, then we're going to get to the text. Is that right, sir? Is the, is the text after this? It's a little bit further on. I even looked at this last night. What's going on? <laughs> we're going to look at the critics first. And we're going to see that Christianity doesn't get a particularly good rap in the media. It doesn't get a good rap in books, in films. There's something about Christianity that kind of upsets people a little bit. I wonder, I wonder if it's a bit of self-reflection they don't like. But in, in fact, even general religion. Think about John Lennon. John Lennon wrote a song called Imagine. It's a very catchy tune and quite enjoyable. You can tap your toes to it. But um, it has words that are really criticizing organized religion, and in particular the religion, I guess, that John Lennon was raised in in Britain, which is Christianity. He said, he says in the lyrics, imagine there's no heaven, it's easy if you try, no hell below us, above us only sky. Imagine all the people living for today. And then if you go through the lyrics, you find out that it's a kind of a song suggesting we'd be better off without any form of religion and, of course, Christianity. We talked about in the first time we gathered here about the four writers of the non-apocalypse, the, the new atheists, Richard Dawkins, Christian, um, 
Christopher Hitchens, Daniel Dennett, and Sam Harris. Well, I want to reintroduce Christopher Hitchens here because he's so quotable just because he says such terrible things. Let's listen to him as to what he has to say about science versus faith. And just because you've been, if hopefully you were here for the first presentation, you realize how silly the statement is. But he says, science has eradicated smallpox. I'm not going to deny that, ladies and gentlemen. But where did the science come from that eradicated smallpox? Can immunize against most previously deadly diseases, can kill most previously deadly diseases. Theology has done nothing but talk of the pestilence of the wage of sin, wages of sins. In other words, science has done all these great things, but Christianity just kind of says, well, tragedy happens because it's God's will or someone's been doing something bad. What you and I now know, of course, is that you wouldn't have the eradication of smallpox if it hadn't been for science. You wouldn't have science if you didn't have Christians who believed in a God of intelligence who created an ordered world with laws to be discovered and believed that man was so fallen that his mind's theories and hypotheses needed to be tested by experimentation, which is known as the Baconian method of determining whether what you're thinking is right or not all comes from Christian theology. He doesn't seem to realize that in the statement. But this statement, of course, is something that is held widely amongst the world's populace in the Western world. Let's look at Christopher Hitchens, who wrote a book called God's Not Great, How Religion Poisons Everything. What a lovely title, ladies and gentlemen. That just really makes you feel good about your day, doesn't it? This is what he had to say. He said, violent, irrational, intolerant, allied to racism and tribalism and bigotry, invested in ignorance and hostile to free inquiry, contemptuous of women and coercive towards children, organized religion ought to have a good deal on its conscience. Honestly, boys and girls, ladies and gentlemen, orcs and elves, how did you even sleep last night? Surely you must be feeling loaded down with massive guilt, as suggested here by Christopher Hitchens. Well, my text for today comes to us from the book of Acts, the first chapter, verse 3, in which we find Luke writing, after his suffering, speaking of Jesus Christ, he presented himself to them and gave them convincing proofs that he was alive. Convincing proofs that he was alive. And of course, this is largely what I've been trying to do for the last four weeks. Provide convincing proofs that he is alive. We've done it from science. Now we're going to look at it from the influence of his church on humanity and civilization. We're going to see that there is a lot of evidence for the good things that the birth of Jesus Christ and the establishment of his church brought to the world. And I'm going to do it across four areas. The first of these is child welfare. The second of these is the status of women within society. The third of these is medical and health. And the fourth will be education, or general universal education, as you and I enjoy, as though we were just breathing. It's as common as mud, and we all accept that it's here and for us. But where did all of those come from? Let's look at children. Children. What kind of, have we got any, we haven't got any under 13-year-olds here today, have we, in the congregation, aside from babies? We haven't. Is that correct? Have we got any under 13-year-olds? That's fine. That means I can speak quite strongly here, otherwise I'd have to be careful about what I said because I wouldn't want uh, to cause any concern. But, you know, in the ancient world when Jesus was born, children were looked upon in a very different manner to the way that they're looked upon today. When you and I hear some tragic story in the news about child abuse within New Zealand, we are shocked. 
We are grieved. Some of us are angry at what's taken place. Do you know in the ancient world, those feelings would be foreign, unknown. It would be outside of the realm of conception to think of a child the way we do today. You see, in the ancient world, it was very dangerous to be conceived as a child and be born. You see, children, it was legal for you to abandon them if you didn't want them. You could just abandon them. Leave them on a hillside to die of exposure or to be devoured by wild beasts. I'm not making this up, ladies and gentlemen. It was common practice in the Greco-Roman world to do this. All deformed babies were abandoned. And female children, most of all, were often abandoned by poor families. Left to die. An economic unit that's not worthy of life. Let's look at a letter from a Roman husband to his wife. And note the casual attitude centered around what we call infanticide, the killing of children, a normal practice in this period. He states in this letter, Know that I am still in Alexandria. I ask and beg you to take good care of our baby son. As soon as I receive payment, I shall send up to you. If you are delivered before I come home, if it is a boy, keep it. If it is a girl, discard it. Only about, and because of this rampant infanticide that was so widespread, only about half of the children ever born in the Greco-Roman world lived to the age of eight years of age. That means that if we were to take this congregation, we could get rid of half of them already. Half of you would be gone if we had been born in this period. Why? Because infanticide was common practice. The killing of a child was not considered a crime. It was possible for a father legally to kill their child. You could sell your child into slavery. You could marry them off. I am desperately trying to do that, ladies and gentlemen. I have two eligible young men here today, and Sandra is collecting curriculum vitae from young ladies. They both have driver's licenses, they both have jobs, and they're generally house trained. And a father in the ancient world could confiscate their son's property. This treatment of children was repeated in Rome, it was in Greece, it was in India, it was in China. It was spread across the entire world, a worldview completely foreign to us. Now the source, if you go to secular books, if you're doing social work at a university or any study of this kind, and you look at a book on child welfare, the secular, non-Christian book will tell you that the views on children that you hold today so dearly do not arise from the pagan world. They do not arise from the new atheists, ladies and gentlemen. They arise from Christianity in the 4th century when Constantine became emperor and converted to Christianity. However imperfect that conversion may have been, it was a radical transformation. Those textbooks will tell you that our views on children changed in the fourth century radically. Every secular source will tell us this. Justinian was a Christian emperor. And look at this edict he passed in the fourth, fifth century. He said, those who expose children, possibly hoping they would die, and those who use the potions of the abortionist, are subject to the full penalty of the law, both civil and ecclesiastical, for murder. Should exposure occur, the finder of the child is to see that he is baptized and that he is treated with Christian care and compassion. They may then be adopted, listen to this, 
even as we ourselves have been adopted into the kingdom of grace. What was his motive for doing this? That you and I, unwanted, have been adopted by God into a royal, divine family. Likewise, we should adopt those children that are abandoned is what he was saying. This was the emperor. It would be like the prime minister of New Zealand saying this and passing it into the law within the New Zealand parliament. You see, where did all this come from? This changed view of children, how we honor, we look after, and we love the most vulnerable in our community. It came from Christianity. It came from one man born 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And when those children were brought to, brought to him, look what he had to say. He said, let the little children come to me. In complete contravention of the custom of his day, he wanted children to come to him. And with a handful of words formed into a single sentence, it changed history for our treatment of children. For 2,000 years, heaven help us if we lose the modicum of Christianity we still have in society because this comes from a Christian teaching from Jesus Christ, the Son of God. What about women within society? When Jesus came to earth 2,000 years ago, women lived very different lives to those that you enjoy here in church today and many women across the Western world enjoy. In ancient Greece, Greece an Athenian woman who was respectable could not eat or converse with guests in their home. A Spartan woman was virtually kept in lock and key and was not able to wander the streets alone, ladies and gentlemen. A Greek girl was not to be taught how to speak, or I should say how to write, and how to read. And in ancient Rome, women had a slightly higher status, but it wasn't much more. And this is because of patria potestas, which is Roman law. In Roman law, is the power of the male head to exercise, he, the power he exercises over his wife, over his family and his descendants. In the Roman law of Manus, it meant that the woman was under the absolute, absolute control of her husband. This meant that a husband could divorce his wife, but the wife could not divorce the husband. A husband could kill his wife if she had committed adultery. And most women, under most circumstances, had no inheritance of property. Of course, this general trend of devaluing women was commonplace across the world at that time. Hebrew society was no exception to this in the intertestamental period, which is between the last book of the Old Testament, which is Malachi, and Matthew in the New Testament, a 400-year period known as the intertestamental period, where rabbinic, rabbinic law came into existence that kind of, would not kind of, definitely devalued women. Think about Jesus' action in this context, and not just in the pagan world, but his actions towards women even in the Judaic world of his age. You see, he radically, and to the consternation of his disciples on many occasions, he overturned thousands of years of discrimination that defined women as socially, intellectually, and spiritually inferior. 
Think about the woman at the well. The disciples weren't so shocked about the fact that he was speaking to a Samaritan. It was the fact that he was speaking to a lone woman on her own like that in direct contradiction to rabbinic law of his age. Listen to what the rabbinic law said. The oral law said, He who talks with a woman in public brings evil upon himself. Jesus broke pagan and Jewish customs by viewing a woman, by not viewing a woman as an inferior being. Think about Mary and Martha. To us, when we read that story, it's a beautiful picture of of Jesus teaching this woman. To the Jewish mindset of that period, it is shocking that he is teaching these women who in the legal Jewish courts of the day, whose testimony was only that, could be considered that, equal to that of a child. You know, in the rabbinic law, it reads, let the words of the law be burned rather than taught to a woman. If a man teaches his daughter in the law, it's as though he taught her lechery or sexual immorality. Think about the follow, and and Jesus did this openly. Think about all the female and woman followers that are recorded in the New Testament. The woman with the issue of blood. She comes to him, touches his garment. In Jewish law, in the Old Testament, she is ritually unclean, and who she touches is going to be ritually unclean. When Jesus finds out who it is, is he angry? Is he dismissive? Does he reject her? He utters these words, go in peace. Go in peace. And he heals her. The early church followed Jesus' example. Think of Apphia, who was a leader in the church of Colossae, or Nymphia, who had a church in the house of Laodicea, and Priscilla and her husband, who had a church that met in their house, and a whole string of other women that are mentioned in positions of prominence and worthy of note in the New Testament, an idea foreign from other literature of that period. Paul ignored his Jewish heritage and the cultural mores of his age. And in the book of Galatians, he said, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, bond nor free, male nor female. Ye are all one in Christ Jesus. Wow. And in the Lord's Supper, women get to partake. Baptism, women get to partake. Unsurprisingly, Women gravitated to Christianity, ladies and gentlemen. You're probably unaware of this, but the early Christian church had more women than men. Rodney Stark, a sociologist at Baylor University, a very good writer, Rodney Stark said that probably 60% of the early church was made up of women. Why? Because the way they were treated in pagan society, and they looked at how the Christians treated women and how the status they had, how they were uplifted and honored within Christianity, was so different to what they had experienced. And they flocked to Christianity. Another reason why there were lots of women within the early church is because the Christians, of course, would not practice infanticide. The Christians said, we won't do this. Do you know that in the ancient Roman world, there was an imbalance between the genders? There were more men than there were women. Do you know why that is? Because of the practice of infanticide for baby girls. It's one of the reasons why the population of the Roman Empire stagnated at 60 million across about 400 years. But the Christians were the inverse. They had more women than men. One of the reasons was because they wouldn't kill their baby girls. But the other reason was that when they saw babies abandoned, more often than not female babies, they adopted them. They raised them. 
See, Christianity didn't just grow because of miracles and the preaching of the word. It's the birds and the bees. It's demographics. It was they had a better ratio. It is an important point here, ladies and gentlemen. The role of women in society was really changed. The Christian emperor Constantine, after his conversion, made rape a capital crime in the Roman Empire. In 374, a Christian emperor appealed the 1,000-year-old um, Patria Potestas. The pagan husband lost the power of life and death over his family, including his wife. Christ radically transformed the value of womanhood. One only needs to see how they were treated in Greek, Roman, Indian, and Chinese society to realize women in the Western world today enjoy more freedoms, more opportunities, and human worth. Why? Because of the new atheists? No. Because of the teaching of Jesus Christ and the actions, his actions towards women. Now the church, I think you know this, has been far from perfect in this area. But when it has accurately represented Jesus' standard, it has given women the dignity intended by God. When the church has actually done that, it has given women the dignity intended by God. Children, women. What about medicine? How many of you here would be dead today if it wasn't for a hospital full of nurses and doctors? I'd definitely put myself in there. How many others? Come on, so even appendicitis. Anyone been to hospital for appendicitis? Well, you think about appendicitis, that could kill you in the ancient world easily. An abscessed appendix, and even if you got operated on for some condition you had, in the pre-antibiotic age, the chance of you surviving is not particularly great, ladies and gentlemen. In fact, a lot of you would not be here thanks to modern medicine. Prior to the coming of Christ, hospitals really didn't exist. There were gathering places for people who were sick, but they were small and they were scattered and they were only used by a specific group of people. Now, if you were wealthy, you could have, afford your own physician, someone who could come and look after you. But if you were the general population, there were gathering places, but they were for a category of people known as the useful sick. That's a nice term, isn't it? In other words, you're economically worthwhile maintaining. If not, we're going to boot you out the door. So the useful sick included people like gladiators. You know, that would be our super 15 teams. <laughs> isn't that sad, ladies and gentlemen, the useful sick? Um, yeah, so we've got our gladiators. We have our soldiers and we have slaves. Everybody else, the vast bulk of us, you know what would happen if you got seriously ill? A lot of families would just boot you out and make you sit by the mailbox to die quietly and please don't make too much noise. This only changed after the coming of Christ. You see, Christians noticed and the disciples really noticed something about Jesus. And that was he had lots of stories and his actions towards the sick were eye-opening. Think about the story of the Good Samaritan. What does that tell us? What's the meaning and behind that? When Jesus says to his disciples, when you do this unto the least of my brethren, you do it unto me. And then, of course, his acts of healing. He seemed to love healing sick people. Do you know that, that medicine and hospitals were so closely associated with Jesus' ministry that in the fourth century at the Council of Nicaea, which tied up the doctrine of the Trinity, in 325, they also made it mandatory that in every town in the empire in which there was a church, there had to be a hospital. Well, just think about that for a second. 
In every town that there was a church, there had to be a hospital. Why? Because Jesus' ministry of salvation was closely intertwined with his ministry towards people who were suffering because of illness. He loved to heal the sick. The first hospital we know of was established by a man called St. Basil of Caesarea in the 4th century. You know, you can go to the oldest, longest-running hospital in the world today if you go to Paris. You may have seen the beautiful Notre Dame Cathedral. And as you look at the front doors of that massive cathedral, if you would just but turn your eyes to the left, there is a hospital there, partly hidden by trees. It's called Hotel Dio, which means Hotel God. This hospital was established in the 7th century. It has been running for 1,300, 400 400 years. 1,400 years this hospital has been continuously running, established by who? Christians, ladies and gentlemen. Next time you're in Paris and you want to get in that big queue to go on Notre Dame Cathedral, well, you go ahead and do that because it is pretty stunning. But you can actually go into that hospital and you can walk into the courtyard. I did it just this year. And just to stand here and think, this has been running for 1,300 years because somebody decided to follow Christ's life and heal and look after the sick. I mean, it's goosebumpy, isn't it, ladies and gentlemen, when you think about it? I want to talk to you about a man called Henry Denay. He was a Swiss banker, he was a philanthropist, and he was also a Christian. In in about the 1850s, he was traveling to visit Napoleon III during the Italian Wars of Unification, and he came across a battlefield. And this battlefield was strewn with men who had been killed and those who were wounded and dying. Some of the people had been taken, the wounded soldiers had been taken to local churches and they were being cared for. And he stopped on his journey to see Napoleon III, and there was something in him that pressed in his conscience and his heart. And he said, I have to stop and help these people. And as he was there helping them, this inspiration came to him, and he realized that if prior to the battle or any humanitarian crisis, if there just was a group of people who were there prepared to deal with the carnage before it happens, so many lives would be saved, even just just with a modicum of health care. This is what he said in a book that he published a decade or so, a few years later. In the state of pent-up emotion which filled my heart, I was aware of an intuition, vague and yet profound, that my work was an instrument of his will. It seemed to me that I had to accomplish it as a sacred duty and that it was destined to have fruit of infinite consequences for mankind. Do you know who Henry Denay is? He's the founder of the International Red Cross, an organization that has saved millions of lives, ladies and gentlemen, millions of lives. Even if you think about the International Red Crescent, where do you think they got the idea for that from in the Islamic world, from the International Red Cross? Do you know that nearly all of the early Muslim hospitals were run by Christians? Wow, this amazing Christian heritage, hospitals, aid organizations run and established by people of faith. Think about medical missionaries, people who leave the comfort of their Wi-Fi and their hot showers and their couches and their big screen TVs and head to the developed world to minister to people in appalling conditions. What would motivate somebody to do something like that? 
in a world of selfishness, egotism, self, being self-satisfied. What would motivate people to do that? You know, Christians have been doing this for hundreds of years. I want to give you a speech that was given at an annual general meeting of a medical missionary board. And it really highlights the difference between um, what, what inspired people to go and why Jesus actually carried out miracles of healing. Listen to this. This gentleman said, Christ said, go preach, but he also said, go heal. Some object to medical missions because it is only a utilitarian way of working. Is that so? Have we no indications of the master's mind and the method? When he healed, was it only, did he only heal as a sign of his power or for the relief of those whom he had come to seek and to save? Primarily for the latter. In point of fact, his deeds of healing were often done in secret and evidently not therefore as signs at all, but just to prove his willingness to, to do good as proofs of his love but not of his power at all. Do you know as late as the 1935, over half, over half the hospitals in China were run by Christians? As late as 1935, over half the hospitals in the world were run by Christians. Do you remember Richard Dawkins' statement about smallpox? Who do you think invented immunology? Who do you think coined the phrase vaccine and vaccination? It's a guy called Edward Jenner. Edward Jenner was an English physician. He was a scientist and pioneer in the smallpox vaccine. And because of him, it is said that he's probably saved more lives, his work saved more lives than any other human being that's ever lived, and you've never heard of him. He was voted in Britain as one of the top 10 Britons that has ever lived. He saved, through his work, more lives than any other human being that has ever lived on this planet. You know, smallpox in the 20th century killed 500 million people. 500 million. The Second World War, to put it in context, killed 55 million. Smallpox killed about three, between 300 to 500 million people in the 20th century. And do you know what this man said his motivation was? Edward Jenner loved the Bible, he was a Christian, and this is what he had to say just before he died. He said to a friend, I am not surprised that men are not grateful to me. Richard Dawkins. This is in the 18th century, but still applicable today. He said, I'm not surprised that men are not grateful to me, but I wonder that they are not grateful to God for the good which he has made me the instrument of conveying to my fellow human creatures. We have looked at children. We have looked at women. We have looked at health care. We now move on to our very last area, which is education. And of course, where did all this come from? Why do Christians go? Why did Donay establish the Red Cross? Why were hospitals made? Because their master said, go heal. Two words, transforming the world. Education. Well, here we are at a school. It's pretty appropriate. You take primary and secondary school education to be the norm. But that is not the case. I can tell you that as a historian, we live in very privileged times that you and I are largely literate to one degree or another. Really, ladies and gentlemen, we are. In the past, getting an education was determined by your social status and your wealth. 
It would be outrageous to consider that all of us could be educated. And this idea of general or universal education comes to us from the Protestant Reformation. It comes from a man called John Calvin. You see, the Protestant reformers, in their conflict with the Catholic Church, realized that one of the reasons why Catholicism and some of its teachings had been so successful is because people couldn't read the Scriptures themselves. And here's what the Protestant reformers said. The way to avoid this from ever happening again is to educate everybody, teach everybody to read and to write. And John Calvin established this principle. A Christian established universal education. We can see this with an act that was passed in America in the 17th century by Puritans colonizing North America. Let's have a look at this. What's called the Old Deluder Act. The old deluder speaking of Satan. But listen to the rationale here for teaching education. It being one chief project of that old deluder Satan to keep men from the knowledge of the Scriptures, it is therefore ordered that every township in this jurisdiction, after the Lord hath increased them to fifty households, shall forthwith appoint one within their town to teach all such children as shall resort to them to write and read, whose wages shall be paid either by the parents or the masters of such children or by the inhabitants in general. Universal education, ladies and gentlemen, comes to us from the Protestant Reformation. Have you ever been to a university? Do you know that universities grew out of monasteries? Who's been to a university graduation? I love graduations. One, you get to see the students that you taught and you thought would never get there. <laughs> Walk on the stage all bright and shiny, all those bad nights and all those rotten essays and all the worry, all gone in their glorious moment. And they come up on the stage like a shiny new penny. Glorious with those mortarboards on. And then the academics get to sit up the back. I quite like sitting up the back. And then you sit up the back there and you've got this bonnet on, which makes you kind of look a bit silly. But then you've got this long Batman cape. You know, it's your academic robe. Where did that robe come from? Where did the, the, the attire that university academics wear on formal occasions come from? It came from the clothing that was worn by monks in the medieval ages. And when I sit there, it crosses my mind that, I am part of an event or a process or a movement that's over a thousand years old. You know, the first university is the University of Bologna in Italy, about the 12th century. And what, you know what its first subject was? Canon law. The University of Paris, 1200. What was its first subject? Theology. Oxford University, Cambridge University all founded around the Christian faith. They did a survey of American universities, the kind of top 200 colleges and universities. And do you know what they found about those universities? They discovered that about 92, something over 90% of them were either established by Christians or Christian denominations. Think about Yale, Harvard, Princeton, Dartmouth College, Georgetown, University of California, Berkeley, Duke University, ladies and gentlemen, which is a, it was established by Methodists. All those great universities, ladies and where did they come from? They came and grew out of a Christian concern for higher learning. There's a survey was carried out about the successes of, of Protestantism in 1900. And in the survey, they looked at literacy rates, which they saw the world divided into three different groupings. The first grouping 
were the pagan or non-Christian countries. And they found that these countries had a literacy rate between 0 to 20% of people who could read and write. The survey in 1900 looked at Catholic countries, think about the countries of Latin America, and they found literacy rates were much better, between 40 to 60%. But in the Protestant nation, this is 116 years ago, they found literacy rates in places like North America and Europe, even down here in Aotearoa, New Zealand, Australia. Look at the rates of literacy. In Protestant nations, 94 to 99.9% literacy. Wow. And why did Christians start to teach people? It's because their master said these two words, go teach. Go teach. Makes a bit of a difference, doesn't it, ladies and gentlemen? Think about this. And I've only looked at four aspects, four aspects of human endeavor, which are so radically transformed compared to the way they used to be. Do you want to live in the ancient world where children were so appallingly treated? Would you like that, ladies and gentlemen? Would you like to be in a world in which women were so devalued they couldn't even leave their own home, that a husband could just divorce them arbitrarily? Would you want to live in a world, ladies and gentlemen, in which there wasn't universal health care, where we look after the poorest and most vulnerable in our society? Do you want to live in a place, ladies and gentlemen, where ignorance is the norm rather than high literacy rates? Thank God, literally, thank God for sending his son, Jesus Christ regardless of what the skeptics and the critics may say. He has given us proofs. He has given us proofs. Let's go to our next slide here as we bring this to a close. In fact, let's go back a bit here, buddy. Go back one. The man I want to talk to you about was an American. Over 100 years ago, James Russell Lowell was a great literary man. He was a minister of state for the United States to England, and he was at a banquet. Now, this is 100 years ago. And at this banquet, people were mocking Christianity, making fun of it, deriding Christianity. And he got up, stood up at this banquet, grabs a little spoon, and taps his crystal glass. Ding, ding, ding. You know how that just breaks through? the conversation, and people immediately turn, and there's our man standing there, a Christian. And these are the words he uttered to the people that were mocking Christianity. He said, I challenge any skeptic to find a 10-square-mile spot on this planet where they can live their lives in peace and safety and decency, where womanhood is honored, where infancy and old age revered, where they can educate their children, where the gospel of Jesus Christ has not gone first to prepare the way. I challenge you to name one ten square mile. Is that what he said here, ladies and gentlemen? One ten square mile where children are loved and nurtured 
where women are honored as God intended, where there is universal health care and education and high literacy, where Christianity did not go first. That challenge is still as valid today as it was 10 years ago, 100 years ago. 100 years ago. My friends, are there proofs? Are there proofs? What was our key text here today? Jesus came to his disciples. After his suffering, he presented to himself and gave many convincing proofs that he is, was, always will be alive. Do you know what he said to John the Revelator? He said, I am alive. I am he that lives and was dead. And behold, I live forevermore. And you know what we've seen this morning? That he lives forevermore in you. When you and I step out and honor his word and follow his teachings, we transform this world. And it is much better, much better because he was born, he came, and people followed and obeyed him and then said, I want to live like the great master, Jesus Christ. How he treated children, how he treated women, educating, healing. Lord, we thank you for your goodness to us. We are blessed beyond blessing. Words cannot convey your goodness to us. The greatness of your work on this earth through your church. Thank you for coming, Lord. Thank you for coming. Woo the skeptics, I pray, Jesus. We thank you for loving them, for the critics. Lord, I pray that your light of your word and your love and the Christian lives around them would speak louder than their own thoughts. For your glory and your mercy is evident. You have given us divine proofs. In Jesus' name, amen. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources, or to donate to our teaching resource ministry, or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.